Hello and welcome back to the fifth episode of The Tea. I'll be covering news from the week of February 15th. So this week we're going to talk about three news stories. First is a collective effort between several student organizations who have put together a motion asking that McGill divest from its investments in companies that either aggravate or are complicit in human rights violations around the world. This motion will be submitted to the upcoming SMU General Assembly, which I will touch on in a second. And there were two McGill governance meetings this week. So first was the SMU Legislative Council and second was the McGill Board of Governors. As always, I'm your host, Sequoia Kim, and you can reach me at the email news at mcgilltribune.com. First up on the podcast, I'll be chatting with new staff writer Ella Fitzhugh about her coverage of a pretty compelling motion that's going to be submitted to the SMU General Assembly happening this week. The SMU General Assembly is basically a form of direct democracy at McGill where SMU, once in the fall and once in the winter, invites any students, any organizations to write up motions that are directly voted on at this General Assembly. And then, you know, if they pass, they can mandate SMU to act on them. One notable motion is titled Divest for Human Rights Policy, and it basically asks McGill to divest, which, you know, means withdraw their investments from companies whose operations are complicit in a variety of human rights abuses around the world. Seven different student groups collaborated on writing this motion, and they are Divest McGill, Climate Justice Action McGill, Students in Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights, Students for a Free Tibet, McGill Stands with Hong Kong, Indigenous Student Alliance, and Students for Peace and Disarmament. Ella interviewed some of these groups for her news article this week, so let's hop right into my conversation with Ella. Ella, could you give us some specific examples of companies that the motion targets and how they're involved in human rights abuses? So the motion covers several companies. The first example I would give is TC Energy Corporation, which McGill currently invests $4,770,450 in. And the corporation owns the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, which has been constructed on the lands of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. And this pipeline's expansion has disrupted indigenous communities and implanted a general environment of violence against indigenous women and children. The motion also targets McGill's investments in companies like Puma, Foot Locker, Nordstrom, and Kohl's, which have all been used in forcing Wager labor. And then there's also Lockheed Martin, where part of McGill's endowment is coming from. They develop weapons that have been used to execute violence in 15 or more countries. Notably, Lockheed made a bomb that was dropped on a school bus in Yemen. Did anyone you interview for your article speak to potential next steps for this motion? Should it pass out of the GA? Like, what's to come? So in my interview with Brooklyn Frizzle, the SMU vice president of University Affairs, they spoke about how if the motion passes at the General Assembly, which is happening February 16th at 6 p.m., SMU will work to generate public support by campaigning further, doing things like outreach and education for students. And in an email interview with A.O. Ogunrimai, SMU Vice President External Affairs, he said if the motion passes, he'll be working to coordinate with SMU's campaign staff and really set up a solid plan for the five-year duration of the policy. You can check the links in Ella's article and read up more about the GA and find out how to attend. And that article will be linked in the show notes. Now I'm going to turn to the two governance pieces this week, starting with the Student Society of McGill University's Legislative Council, which you might hear me refer to as SMU Ledge Council for short. 
I'm going to chat with Jonathan Giamaria, an arts and entertainment editor at the Tribune who covered the February 11th Ledge Council meeting this week for the news section. So it looked like it was a very packed meeting with a ton of motions being debated and discussed more than usual, and with several of these items being referendum approval questions. So a quick note of clarification here, all referendum items that you see and vote on during the fall and winter referendums at McGill always need to go through Ledge Council first. So when I say that Legislative Council passed these referendum motions, I don't mean that they passed them directly into action. I mean that they approve them to be featured on the forthcoming referendum itself, which will then be up to the student body to vote on. So I'm not going to list them out here for the sake of time because they all passed, except for one that was postponed for further discussion. But if you are interested, you can read up on which fees passed, or you can just wait for the winter 2021 referendum because that's where they will ultimately end up. And these are all just fee increases, renewals, approvals, stuff like that. So with that, let's get into my conversation with Jonathan and go over some of the highlights of the meeting. All right, so there were two interesting motions voted on at the start of the meeting. I'll start with the motion regarding a policy on harmful military technology. This motion was moved by the Vice President of External Affairs, A.O. Ogunremi. Jonathan, could you please tell me a bit about what this, what the premise of this motion is and what it entails? Yeah, for sure. So I don't know how widely known it is at McGill that there is research going into harmful military technologies, but our Managing editor, Nina Russell, she wrote her feature about it. So uh, you can definitely check it out to learn about it. There was a 2020 policy by the SSMU about uh, harmful military technologies, except it expired in April. Terminology was vague. So basically with this new one, AO really wanted to specify the, the difference and also qualify what is harmful military research and what is harmful military technology because with this motion he really wants it so that McGill is super transparent about what research they're doing and if that research directly leads to harmful military technologies because that way SSMU can advocate for McGill's transition out of these types of research because it doesn't align with student interests it's not ethical practice Thank you so much for fleshing that out. And I'll definitely link Nita's feature because it was very impressive. But yeah, another motion, which I found pretty compelling, I think, was also one moved by AO. And it was titled the motion regarding a position on institutions of public safety. So that wording is a little broad. And I was just wondering whether, Jonathan, you could tell us a bit more about what this motion means and what the aim behind tabling it was. Yeah, there was massive public scrutiny over institutions of public safety, meaning basically police forces. SSMU has not had a formal stance on these institutions, um, nor have they been able to recognize the systemic racism embedded into them. So basically what this motion does is just that. It, it enables them to make their stance public and concrete. So there are a lot of sections in that motion about exactly what that means, but some of the examples are things like recognizing that police disproportionately harm marginalized people and that police interventions do not address the root causes of marginalizations or they often exacerbate them when police get involved. So yeah, it was a really, you know, there was like hardly any debate over it. Everyone was really on board. It passed really quickly. Super interesting. Now, I know I said I wouldn't talk too much about 
referendum questions, but there actually was a referendum question in particular that sparked debate amongst the council. And that was the question of whether to allow the increase of the SMU membership fee to pass out of Ledge Council. So the membership fee, recall, is a fee that all SMU members pay. So pretty much all undergraduate students and that you can't opt out of because you're a member of SMU. VP University Affairs Brooklyn Frizzle moved to increase the fee by $1.20. So for fall 2020, just for some context, the fee was sitting at around $59.98 per term if you have nine credits or more, and around $29.12 per term if you have less than nine credits. So Jonathan, could you first tell us why Brooklyn proposed this increase? So at these legislative councils, student councillors, which are basically representatives for the faculties they belong to, and student senators, they attend, they prepare for them, they put all this work into them, and they basically right now stand as unpaid part-time interns. Councillors and senators do really important work, and so Brooklyn felt that they needed to be compensated for their work. So what this fee increase will do is just that. It'll pay them hourly wages so that they aren't going unpaid. It's a big commitment and I'm, I'm always very impressed by these representatives, but there actually was some debate over this and I was wondering, could you tell me about what people had to say about whether or not to pass this referendum question out of Ledge Council? Yeah, there was actually a really lively and impassioned and extended debate about this, which I which I found really interesting. After the question period, the main opposition to it was brought up by management representative Noah Gunderman and also management representative Minalu Kurtza Raulin. They were thinking that monetary reimbursement would be a wrong incentive for students applying and making themselves candidates for these positions. They wouldn't have the students' best interests in their hands anymore because their main priorities would, would just be the money. So that was the main opposition. There was also um, Chip Smith. He sort of said that it could open a sort of Pandora's box, meaning it was sort of vague, but he's, I guess he sort of meant it as that, you know, if you're, if you start paying this position, what other positions are we going to start paying? If I can insert my own opinion, I didn't really find these arguments super compelling. And I really appreciated the rebuttals that um, other SSMU members provided. Brooklyn and then Senator Addie Parsons, they were both basically no. Counselors and senators provide an invaluable service to students and SSMU, and they deserve to be paid for their labor because otherwise it's labor theft. I really like that wording on Brooklyn's part. Arts representative Alex Karasik was like, no, if people are after after the money, after the wages, they will go to higher positions because that is where the money is, not in the councillor and senator positions. And then Senator Parsons further added, councillors do really important work. They're partly responsible for the SCU policies that we have, the fall reading week that, that was just implemented. And then, of course, many councillors and senators um, cited personal anecdotes about how, you know, they really love their job, but it, it can't sustain them. You know, they're, they're students that live on their own. Some of them are paying for their own tuition and they have to work other jobs besides being counselors and senators, which takes up a, like so much time, like you said. The final really um, compelling argument was brought up by engineering representative Jake Reed and also mental health commissioner Julia Caddy. Basically that not paying these positions is 
a matter of accessibility, meaning that these are elected positions as a democratic institution, we want as many candidates as possible to apply or to run for these positions. And not paying these positions automatically whittles down your candidacy pool because not everyone is going to feel secure in being able to apply. Jonathan, thank you so much for such a thorough answer. Very, very interesting arguments on both sides. And the Tribune editorial board did editorialize on this issue earlier, and I may link that in the show notes. You can read Jonathan's coverage of the meeting for the news section this week. It will be linked in the show notes. And thank you so much again for joining me today, Jonathan. It was wonderful to have you on the podcast. And I really appreciate your attention to detail when when speaking about this. Yeah, Um, if I could just like, as my parting words, I implore all students to like attend one of these meetings because before I did this, for the trip, by the way, I didn't know how much time and effort was put into these meetings. These students are really running a very professional uh, governing body. So I, I really encourage everyone to attend one of these. Yes, some wonderful parting words. Next up, I'm going to be covering the McGill Board of Governors, and I'll be chatting with our news staff writer, Ella Malloy, who covered the meeting for the news section this week. You can read that article linked in the show notes. The meeting started off with a report from the Building and Property Committee, and it it sounds boring, but they actually are in charge of a lot of the renovations going on on campus that just never seem to end. But Ella, could you quickly tell us about what some of these updates on these various projects are and what the committee is currently working on? So this report uh, was one of the main focuses of the open session of the meeting, and it really focused on four projects. So Vice Principal of Administration and Finance, uh, Yves Beauchamp, went through the report and discussed briefly the new VIC project and the Fiat Lux library project. So regarding the new VIC project, the committee was informed that a decision from the provincial government about the project is expected in the next couple of weeks and that community consultations are underway. The Fiat Lux library project, they're also expecting a decision from the provincial government soon. And the Board of Governors is expected to receive a presentation on that project later this year. Beauchamp also briefly discussed future renovations of the Strathcona anatomy and dentistry building walls, which have been like in shambles for the past like couple of years, but they didn't go into very much detail about that project. I guess we'll see if they actually renovate it. (laughs) And so the core of the report centered around a motion to approve the ongoing Stewart Biology West Wing redevelopment project. The approval of this motion is allowing the committee to proceed with lot four four of the project. So I think they like separated it into four sections. So this would be the last one. And it would involve the fit out of the interior spaces. So basically making them suitable for students and professors and just members of the community to use it. So far, this project has involved the removal of asbestos from the West Wing new fireproofing of the structure and a full interior renovation amongst like a list of other projects. And they anticipate the completion of the West Wing in summer 2022. So there's still a bit more to do, but it looks like it's wrapping up. Perfect. Thank you so much for that update. Not surprising that the construction is (laughs) far from over, but yeah. Um, Another relevant highlight of the meeting was talk of preparations for the fall 2021 semester that all of us are very anxiously awaiting any information about it. Did anyone give sort of like any clues about what the fall semester might end up looking like? Were there any talk of vaccines, in-person classes? I'm sure a lot is still up in the air, but could you maybe run us through some of the common sentiments that were expressed by the board members? So the fall 2021 semester was discussed very briefly at the beginning of the meeting's open session. So in terms of what we can expect, Provost 
Christopher Manfredi kind of made it clear that the fall semester won't look like fall 2019, but it certainly can't look like fall 2020. So it was a relatively vague answer. I'm sure they're waiting on how the vaccine rollout goes before making a decision right away, but it does sound like they want to have as many in-person activities on campus as possible in the fall. And speaking on vaccines, there was discussion of whether the school would make vaccines mandatory for people to return to campus. And Principal Suzanne Forte kind of passed this question off to the legal team to answer in the future because she wasn't sure if the school would like legally be allowed to enforce that. Yeah, I guess we'll see if that comes up closer to when our age group would start getting vaccinated. It sounded like from what the board members were saying that a lot of people were concerned about what the impact on international students would be like. So I don't know if they're looking at maybe doing a mix of like in-person and online just to meet everyone's needs. I am sure there'll be more discussion of it going forward. Thank you so much, Ella, for coming on the podcast. Again, you can read Ella's article. I'll link it in the show notes. This wraps up the podcast of the week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Some final credits. Thank you to multimedia editors Sarah Ford and Alex Hinton for editing the podcast. Thanks to creative director Aiden Martin and editor-in-chief Helen Wu for executive production. Thanks to design editor Chloe Rodriguez for making the podcast graphic. And a big thank you to the two Ellas, Ella Fitzhugh and Ella Malloy, and also to Jonathan for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week.